You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Drew Dalton, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Dominican University in Chicago, Illinois, where he currently serves as chair of the department. He is the author of numerous articles in European philosophy, literature, cultural studies, and phenomenology, as well as three authored books, Longing for the Other, Levinas and Metaphysical Desire, published in 2009 by Duquesne University Press, The Ethics of Resistance, Tyranny of the Absolute with Bloomsbury in 2018, and the just-out book, The Matter of Evil, From Speculative Reason to Ethical Pessimism with Northwestern University Press, and which is the occasion for our conversation today. In this discussion, we explore the relationship between material science and metaphysics, the relation between metaphysics and ethical sensibility, as well as the place of pessimism in our ethical, existential, and political thinking. Drew Dalton, it's great to see you, or hear you, I guess, in this case, since we're producing audio, but it's great to see you and have a chance to talk about your book today. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to having a chance to try to present some of its madness in a reasonable form. <laughs> I'm sure that will be the case. I have to say, I was really excited. We've The podcast has been on a hiatus for a little while, and so um, uh, the collective uh, is getting back you know, to business of recording these. And so scheduling these, I was really excited to see yours at the top of, of my schedule. Um, you know, we've been friends for a good bit, uh, really like you as a person and really like you as a scholar. You know, I thought of your first two books, especially your second book, you know, you always write with real rigor, but you also write with a lot of creativity. Yeah. Um, you know, you work with, uh, you know, I think a lot of creativity with theory and text um, that your second book really does so much with. And the first book really lays the foundations of. And when I read this, I was a uh, new book. I was like, this is really, you know, the, the an achievement of, I think, thinking with theory rather than talking about texts. Hmm. And so I love this book. I think it's really, really important. And you know, the more eyes that get on it, the better for lots of reasons. But I just think so many people from so many different fields will have a lot to learn from this book. So I just want to start by saying, like, thank you for writing this. It's beautifully written and it's substantial, man. I like kept scrolling down, reading the PDF. I was like, this is a substantial book, a lot of pages and all good pages. Well, I really appreciate that. I don't, I don't know about all of them being good pages. <laughs> in fact, I think in many ways, the whole the whole project is uh, born out of a disastrous encounter with something really, really bad. <laughs> but I, I, I appreciate the fact that uh, you think that I was able to turn something bad to good. I think in many ways, that's the very theme of the book is how do we sort of <clears throat> spin gold from straw? How do we make good out of something incredibly difficult, something incredibly horrifying? Um, but it's gratifying yeah. to hear that, that you found it that way. When I was rereading it in anticipation for our meeting, you know, I think we're always sometimes our, our harshest critics, but I was like, gosh, this is just cumbersome. And I wonder if anybody will be able to read this and make sense of it at all. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that. 
Well, absolutely. Really it, it, it is. Your worst fears are completely untrue. But just when you listen back to this podcast, you'll have that with your voice. We all like whether we read our voice or hear our voice. I think it's always a little bit horrifying, but you got to trust the other in this case. Hmm. Um, but, you know, you sort of sort of indicated something there that, that I wanted to start with. You know, I always like to ask people like how, you know, both in these podcasts, but also just talking with friends, like, how do people come to their projects? You know, as you know, writing a book isn't just you, you know, spin up your your Word document and type out your pages and it's done. I mean, it's a full existential investment. We put aside huge parts of our emotional lives, our social lives, interpersonal lives to write these books. So I, something makes us or uh, makes us want that. Something draws us to projects. So I wanted to ask you, you know, as a sort of way of getting started, to, if you would narrate us into the project, you know, why did you come to this? How did you come to this? Why write this book now? In terms of the kind of philosophical, moral, political concerns that um, can sustain attention to a project, which take, you know, all projects, they take so much out of us, you know, you know, why this book and why now? Thanks. Yeah. I think, you know, no project has just one tributary feeding into it. You know, there's any number of of streams that kind of eventually converge to to <clears throat> give enough life to it that it can kind of flow on its own, right? And I think yeah. in this case, there were two major streams. The first was a problem that I confronted at the end of the last book. <clears throat> and, and in many ways, actually, I think every major project I've undertaken has flowed from a problem I, can, <laughs> I found at the end of the previous project. So, I mean, for example, to go back in time, I my doctoral dissertation grew out of a very personal existential problem I had with feeling homesick. I was studying abroad. I was doing my PhD in Europe. And I found the, the phenomenon of homesickness to be profoundly curious because I myself did not have a great relationship to my home. Uh, I didn't tend to nostalgize my childhood. I, didn't, I wasn't close to my family. But all of a sudden, being alienated from everything found me creating this sort of fantastical home, this imaginary home. <clears throat> and I wanted to investigate that phenomenologically. So I kind of uh, dug into the history of philosophy to see if people had talked about this. And it, it brought up a larger project on the question of what does it mean to long, to have desires in general. So after I finished my dissertation, I decided to write a book about human longing. I felt that Le Emmanuel Levinas had a really nice take on the experience of desire and, and how it drives us and how it's not necessarily driven by any particular object, but something otherwise than beyond all objects. But as I finished that project, I found myself troubled by Levinas. I felt that there was something in Levinas that just didn't fit with my experience of my encounter with otherness. Um, he seems to read it as something wholly good. And I, I, I was a little bit suspicious of that. So I, I wanted to kind of investigate the moral and ethical potentials of um, <clears throat> the ambiguity of, of otherness, the ambiguity of its absolute power over us. And, and that's what led to the second book. And, and at the end of that, I found myself going, yeah, but what would be a kind of metaphysical basis for this? So, so there was this question, this kind of continuing thread of questions that I was just sort of following, mm. almost like breadcrumbs or, or as you're tracing and tracking an idea and you see a little broken branch and you wonder if something's gone this direction. At the same time in my own sort of private life, I was reading a lot of uh, popular science <clears throat> And I was finding that I was learning something I had never known, which is that there had been a, a veritable revolution in the material sciences in the last hundred years, which has kind of radically reformulated the way that contemporary scientists think about the material world, think about the natural world. 
And it was the confluence of these two things. One, looking for a kind of metaphysical foundation for the kind of ethical insights I discovered while wrestling with Levinas. And two, looking at the natural sciences and seeing them finding this kind of, for lack of a better word, universal ground for all of the things they explained. And wondering if I couldn't wed these two things together. I'm wondering if there mm. wasn't a way in which what scientists were talking about in the material field as a universal ground couldn't end up being also a metaphysical ground. So that initiated a whole new project of trying to read the history of materialism in the West, trying to understand its relationship to materialism and other philosophical traditions, and trying to see if I couldn't derive from these philosophical materialist traditions something which would explain the kind of ethical intuitions I was discovering through my wrestling with Levinas. And so that's kind of where mm -hmm. this got born out and why it's such a weird and big project that draws from the natural sciences, that draws from the history of metaphysics, that draws from the history of ethics, and that ultimately uh, also tries to aim at kind of a practical political um, program. Because, and I know there's a slightly different question, but to me, if there's not some practical existential import at the end of the day to what we're doing um, at the ethical political level, then it just seems to me to be um, nothing more than an exercise in, in, in uh, the obscure. <clears throat> I always tell my students the most important question they can ask whenever they encounter any thinker is, so what? That's the most important philosophical question. So what? I've read this idea, but so what? How does it change my life? How does it help me to endure or enjoy my existence? Um, and if it can't answer that, then I think it, it fails fundamentally. And so I wanted to be able to answer that question myself. So that's kind of the, the various tributes yeah. that led into this, this big and weird project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk about that. I mean, that's part of, for me, what's, what's so fascinating about it as an expansive project. I mean, it's clearly uh, a book that the more, you know, the, lots of different eyes on it will see so many different things because I, mean, I was struck, you know, reading the introduction, especially by the natural science part. I was like, what's Drew been reading? I mean, there, I have an answer. I'm glad we talked. But, you know, I, I was, it's so funny when you, you say that about so what? I mean, you know, we both have PhDs in philosophy and either teach in philosophy departments or teach philosophically. Um, that's a terrifying question to get from students. Mm. In the sense of it raises the stakes, it's like a zero to 60 kind of moment. But I've always felt like when I got that from students, I mean, it can be mean-spirited, like, so what, who cares? But I also thought even if it is mean-spirited or if it's generous and they're really trying to figure out what's going on here, like, to not have an answer to that is a real question. And I've I found myself in various parts of my career struggling to answer, to answer that in talking about it in the classroom. So... Um, and as answering that myself in my own writing, because as you say, like, you know, uh, the existential import I think is so important because it's like, that could be anything from like political activism to, you know, understanding yourself as a person and everything in between. Um, but, to not, you know, the fact that that question can lurk over so much of what we do, um, you know, I think rather than dismiss, I like that rather than dismiss it as like not appreciating intellectual life or something like that, actually embracing it and saying, I need to be able to answer to something. And this is a pretty good God to have as my conscience, I actually think. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, there's this <clears throat> lovely story that I always like to draw from of um, 
the first historical Buddha, you know, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, they say that after he uh, uh, realized the four noble truths, after sitting in, uh, you know, meditation underneath the Bodhi tree, the very first thing he did was touch the earth with his hands. It's called the test of testifying of the earth or the testimony of the earth in the classic sort of um, Buddhist traditions. <clears throat> and it, apparently, at least the way that it's traditionally interpreted is it's his way of sort of not only grounding himself, literally, like, but also testing these seemingly abstract ideas that he gained through meditation alone against the material reality of his lived embodied experience. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of think that's kind of what the so what question is. It's a way of regrounding ourselves, coming back to earth, reconnecting to the concrete lived experience. And the concrete lived experience for us as humans is sociopolitical. That's what it is. We are inextricably sociopolitical beings from the moment we're conceived uh, to the never ending mourning that may, you know, uh, come after our death, we are bound up and defined in and through our relations to others. And so that to me is the real testing ground. That's why ethics and politics has always sort of dominated uh, my work, both from its earliest uh, iterations, even when I'm asking these questions about home, what is a home and where does my connectedness to home come from through longing as a whole, through the ethics of resistance. And now in the matter of evil, I think in fact, the matter of evil, this, this text that we're talking about is, is the second part of what I'm thinking of as a three-part series. The first one being a kind of ethics and politics, the second one being a metaphysics, and the third one being an aesthetics. But the thing that's guiding all of it is an ethics and politics. I think Emmanuel Levinas is right. Um, ethics is first philosophy. I would almost go a little bit further and say we can't divorce ethnic politics. So, and I know you agree with this, so politics is yeah. really t- first philosophy. It's really the testing grounds of our ideas. So it's got to guide everything, which is why, unlike Kant, who thinks epistemology and metaphysics has to come first, followed by ethics, followed by epistemology, I think ethics and politics comes first and continues yeah. to be the guiding thread. And so this so what question, or this like touching the earth mudra, that's what keeping ethic, keeping it real, as it were, that's what ethics and politics does for me. This That's what it's, it's it says, how, how can I... How can I embody this? How can I live in this? How can this help me to think about the relationships and the commitments and the responsibilities I have to myself in relationship to others, to others in relationship to me and, 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 you know, our society as a whole. Yeah. No, I love that. I, you know, it's, you know, talking about the sort of touching the earth, natural science, um, uh, like our, the materiality of our, of our ethical and political lives. I mean, I was really struck by the title, which I think on a first glance is maybe not quite so uh, provocative, The Matter of Evil. But then I was like, no, as I started to read, because, you know, if I read that, The Matter of Evil, it's, you know, well, the topic of evil, the subject of, you know, but that's not what it is, right? The matter part of evil is really interesting. And so I want to hear about that, but also evil, which is... Um, it's a funny word for me because it's kind of unfashionable. Uh, these days. <laughs> it's kind of unfashionable, but it's also I've always thought it really indispensable that it actually mm. does. It's a name that we need, um, and so I want to ask you just to walk us through the title, the matter and the evil, and what it means to link those two. Yeah, thanks so much. That's really the heart of the book. So, in many ways, the book is divided into two parts. The first part dealing with matter, the nature of material reality as we contemporarily understand it, and, and our, even our ability to talk about it meaningfully. I mean, that's a fundamental question we have in sort of uh, mid-Atlantic theory is what what avenues do we have for even being able to talk about reality? Or is reality always constrained? Is material reality always constrained by our perception? Uh, is it constrained, for example, by our cultural events? So the, the first question is, well, can we talk about something like an absolute reality? And if so, what would it look like? I want to say we can, and it's 
through the sciences and it's through our encounter with something like matter. But then the question is, well, can we extract from our encounter with matter any, so what, any ethical or political import? And I want to say we can, but it's counterintuitive because it's not going to be what we typically think about matter, which is that it's either morally neutral or as the natural kind of theological tradition would say, that it's good. I want to say just the opposite, that matter is evil. Uh, and in this sense, I'm kind of reviving an old Manichaean argument from the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. In fact, I jokingly, the title of the uh, Word document when I was writing it was Neo-Manichaeism or Gnosticism Without God. Uh, it was kind of a, a little joke to myself. I think we have to play little tricks like this when we're writing to, you know, uh, <laughs> deflate the intensity and the horrifyingness of the blank uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, page. So I think that's that's where where these sort of two terms come from, like matter and evil really being uh, the thing. And, and it kind of arose a, a little bit of a, another bad joke as I was writing, which is, you know, like, well, what's the matter with life? Well, matter itself is the problem, you know? Um, you know, the old, what's the matter, baby? Well, matter is the problem. So I, I, that's kind of where this, the matter of evil mm-hmm. played is where the title came. Initially, I actually wanted to title it The Metaphysics of Decay. Um, uh, because it's really kind of where I'm sort of pinning the concept of evil onto matter um, is in mm-hmm. the problems of decay and how decay is not only inextricable from material reality, but has a a very specific affect for the human, namely suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, it just seems to sort of naturally give itself over to these questions of evil, which, again, is unpopular as they are for and unfashionable for good reasons, by the way, of course, because it's been mobilized uh, yeah. So insidiously, time and time again, to vilify uh, our alleged enemies, or to vilify the other, or to repress um, uh, the outsider, <clears throat> that it, it, it's been stricken from the academy uh, for a number of years. But again, for good reason. But I, I completely agree with you. We shouldn't lose the mobility of this term um, as a as a critical lever by which we can sort of respond to not only fundamental elements of our human condition, but but fundamental elements of the social and political situation, you know, yeah. which I think, by the way, grow from our human condition, um, which I then, mm-hmm. I want to say, grow from the nature of material reality itself. It's funny hearing you talk about uh, these other other titles or title of the document that you thought of, of titling. A lot of these conversations, I find people talking about their previous titles, I think that's like, maybe I should just ask that as a question. Like, what were your other titles for a book? Because I think <laughs> other titles are actually uh, Metaphysics of Decay. And I love uh, talking about Manichaeism. Uh, brings me back to uh, third third quarter of my first year <laughs> reading about the Manichaeans through Augustine. Um, but also, I think these kinds of oppositions and the weightiness of both terms like matter and evil um, – I think the rhetorical value and the theoretical value, I, I, I think like you really capitalize on that because when I first saw the title, I was like, you've kind of, I knew, you know, I suspected it was more than you meant something more about matter than, you know, than, you know, topic or subject. So I was like matter and evil, you've, you really have to answer to those terms, mm. you know, and that, cause they rhetorically, they elevate the stakes. Um, and, uh, hearing you talk about it, I, I like that, uh, you know, that it's, um, to hear you confirm that, that, that it does set stakes, uh, that are really high 
and really difficult to confront. You know, I mean, when you say metaphysics of decay, even like decay, you know, as somebody who just turned 55, decay is on my mind um, and that materiality of life. But also, you know, anytime we reckon with the social political realities of mass killing Mm, and indifference to to life, uh, all of a sudden evil, matter, decay, Manichaean, I mean, these are the animating features in ways that I, you know, and I, We'll, we'll talk about pessimism in this book, of course, but where it takes us is really, really difficult. And I appreciate you taking us there, right, yeah. in a rigorous way. You know, there's something you said there that I just want to pick up on that's so so wonderful. And you said, you know, we're living in a time of of radical indifference to human life. And we see it in the news every day, and it, it, it horrifies us. It terrifies us. It, it strikes me as strange that we're willing to extend the concept of evil to include this indifference to life when we talk about it within our human engagement. So when we see um, indiscriminate bombing of civilian facilities, uh, hospitals, uh, schools, or mass shootings, we go, gosh, this horrifying indifference to to human life, it's just so obviously radically evil. Like if, if our word has any meaning at all, it attributes to this. But then we're very unwilling to extend that same meaning to the nature of material reality itself, which is equally indifferent to us and to our well-being. Nothing is more indifferent to my being than my being itself. My body is completely indifferent to my wants and desires. You mentioned turning 55. I don't want to turn 55. I, I want to stay perpetually 27. And yet my body refuses to listen to my desires. I don't want my heart to have um, an arrhythmia. And yet my heart is completely indifferent to my desires. I can plead with my bowels to digest the curry I ate last night with, <laughs> with ease. And yet it is completely indifferent. What is this indifference, which I not only have to suffer the indignity of, but I literally have to suffer at, a, at an existential level and at a material level, as pain, if not the same kind of indifference that horrifies me in the actions of a government or horrifies me in the actions of an individual or horrifies me in the structural indifference of um, a legal system to the dignity of another human being. I, I think that's really the heart of the matter, as it were, that matter itself is indifference. And that's also the heart of evil, that, that, that evil is this profound indifference. It is this gratuitous indifference. Um, now, some may say that this is a kind of anthropomorphization of, of, of reality, the expectation that reality should conform. But I would say it's just the opposite. Our sense of what is evil uh, grows from something primal in nature itself. Yeah. I mean, the old uh, old 1927 wisdom, right? Being is only disclosed through Dasein, right? When you, mm. we, we only know the world through subjectivity, right? But we also know uh, our own vulnerability to it. Now, I mean, that's, it's, it's so, int- I mean, this is, and I, I know we're getting, a, not, we're not getting, we're getting into the heart of the book, actually, not a field, but you know, that the, we all actually know that idea intuitively that matter is evil because mm. we have all either witnessed or been mortally ill, mm. right? That mortal illness is a commonplace. It's something we all know. It's sometimes a secret we keep, sometimes a thing we talk very loudly about. But that way that the body is completely indifferent, right? Uh, I think we have some humor, right, about aging and, you know, my body hurts when I wake up or something. But it's only humor because we all know that this is really cruel, 
Mm. And I think the word evil is really interesting to talk about because when you say, oh, I, I've slept wrong. And so for a month, my rotator cuff hurt. This is me right now. Um, that's actually really difficult and like fucks up my week. Right? Mm. It fucks up my two weeks. Um, and so the way that contacts, you know, phenomenologically to everything from like how I wake up to how I understand my own mortality to how I understand the political, right? That's that ethics and politics, like those, where are those boundaries? I, you know, I think your book blurring them without having to constantly make the argument, ethics and politics are intertwined. And instead just says, look at how ethics and politics are intertwined across all of these phenomenological and existential engagements. You know, I, I'm glad to see that turn in that debate, right? In your book, rather than like, we're gonna constantly debate the structural relationship instead phenomenologically, right? And this is where, you know, this as an aside, this is also where I appreciate so much of your work just sticks to the phenomenological, yeah. right? I, I like to think that I do too, right? That's like, it, it is a, a method of showing, right? It's not just a method as a method or a method of interpretation. It's a way of showing in all of these uh, various ways. And so, it sits really intimately, but it also sits really globally and transhistorically. Um, so good job in the book by bridging those two, even though, as I think it's already clear, that's what's really difficult about this book. Hmm. So it was a it was a hard book to take seriously in the sense of like when you take <laughs> it seriously, it's really it's difficult. Yeah, it is. It's, it, it it's a difficult work. And in fact, I, I love the fact that speaking of taking seriously, um, uh, and you mentioned humor and the importance of humor. I think you're absolutely right that humor is something we use to sort of dialectically escape what we always already know to be the case, which is that it's hard to be and increasingly so as, as being kind of has more of its own way against us, more of its own way within us and through us as we age, as we rot, as we decay, you know, the three signs as they are in Buddhist thought, right? The sickness, aging, and death that becomes increasingly clear for our encounters with these things the horrifyingness of reality. And <clears throat> the only way we can endure it is by precisely not taking it seriously. <laughs> you know, I think humor as an escape valve is so essential. But what's interesting about that is that it, it, it you're right, there's a kind of a natural intuition to it, but it, but it contravenes precisely what is allegedly agreed upon and allegedly so obvious within the history of philosophy, namely that evil there is spoken of as a kind of negative phenomenon, right? Being itself is seen as either neutral or good, and evil is usually just seen as something privative um, and perverse. But it seems to me that if the things that I think of as good, like humor uh, uh, or, or these things that alleviate my suffering, uh, arise precisely as an escape valve to the horrifying realities that I'm already aware of, then <clears throat> why not inverse that? Why not say that evil is the primary thing and that, that good is simply the thing that's achieved dialectically? And it's achieved dialectically, you're right, precisely by not letting matter take itself seriously in you. I always like to joke that, um, uh, you know, when people say, well, can you take something seriously? I say, well, I don't, I don't want to take uh, material reality seriously in the same way that I don't want a serious case of cancer, right? Uh, I, <laughs> I want to... Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. way. I want to take things lightly. Um, I think this is, again, to go back to that sort of Manichaean element, right? There's this sense that um, we can understand where dualism comes from. We can understand where somebody would think, well, gosh, it's so manifestly obvious that the indifference of my body seems to betray the fact that 
I don't identify with it. So there must be some me that's otherwise than my body. Mm -hmm. But what would it be to affirm that same sentiment while denying that there is something otherwise than my body, that there is just matter? What, yeah. what kind of ethical ramifications come from a kind of purely materialist encounter with these intuitions? And that's really where I'm trying to grow from. Yeah. Um, or, so if I was to write a book review, I, I like that I've already formulated the title as uh, Drew Against the Augustinians. <laughs> <laughs> Someone uh, Jesuit educated in the olden days, because um, it's an old debate, but uh, through really refreshed sources. It's sort of on that sources or just even motifs note. Let me ask you about the subtitle. So the title, I think, as you said, the title is sort of the entire book and um gave, a, I think, a really great arc of the book um, in, in your comments. I want to ask about the subtitle, because in some ways, you know, the title is either metadata for Amazon and libraries, but the subtitle is usually where we state something really urgent about the book. And so I'm curious about these. Uh, it's subtitled from speculative realism to ethical pessimism. I just want to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, why speculative realism, like why, why this field is important and then ethical pessimism, why that, that, you know, if it's an affect, if it's an orientation, right. Cause that's an interesting combination just to say ethical and pessimism is it it being is, yeah. ethical about being pessimistic or is it pessimism as a, as an ethics. Yeah. Um, but just to hear you talk a little bit about the subtitle. Thanks. So I tried to, I tried to kind of organize the subtitle along precisely the kind of duality of the title itself. <clears throat> so if we think of the book as breaking down into two sections, the first addressing the possibility of talking about uh, an absolute reality in, in, in and through uh, our encounters with material reality, and the second part talking about what ethical ramifications of it. Well, the first question is going to be methodological. H how can we even begin to approach something like uh, matter as an absolute reality? What what systems of thought, what theoretical lenses can can we use to kind of um, dial in our, our perspective on this thing? And, and speculative realism or speculative materialism, um, new materialism in general, um, is I think a really dynamic, uh, emergent um, uh, uh, field of theoretical forces that allow us to kind of think about absolute reality in a new way and think about it in its own terms, not merely in terms of how it appears to us, um, uh, individually, kind of phenomenologically or sociopolitically or culturally or historically, but really as something which exists as a kind of what Kant would call a noumenal thing in itself. I think, in fact, what mm -hmm. speculative realism is doing is liberating us from the confines of the Kantian critique without betraying its core insights such that we can all of a sudden agree with him about this noumenal phenomenal split and yet say there are avenues or wormholes through phenomenal consciousness that we can use to tunnel into noumenal reality itself and talk about it in its own terms. So the speculative realism or the speculative materialism side of the subtitle refers methodologically to the question of matter itself, the question of uh -huh. what is matter and how do we talk about matter in a meaningful sense. Then if we then kind of flip to the other side, <clears throat> the question is, well, if we're now talking about matter, is there any sort of, again, similarly or analogically theoretical lens we can use to get perspective on the ethical valence of an absolute, uh, the ethical valence of noumenal reality or the ethical valence of material reality. And of course there are, right? Historically, there's a number of them. 
what's ironic is that the only ones that seem to conform to what we can talk about via the material sciences today are pessimism, are pessimistically driven, are pessimistically motivated. Um, whether that's in the European tradition of particularly 19th century thinkers, Schopenhauer, um, Bonson, Mainlander, and others, or uh, in the materialist traditions of um, the Indo-Pakistani philosophical tradition, particularly early Theravadic Buddhism, um, some strains of early Chinese thought, particularly um, uh, in uh, the Mo Mohist tradition, but well, kind of a sub-branch off of Mohism. But so it's, I, I kind of wanted to see, well, how can we then wed these two things together? The speculative realism that gives us a lens onto material reality and its absolute nature. Mm -hmm. And this sort of ethical interpretation of that material reality and its absolute nature as a decaying, suffering being. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's why we kind of move in the book from matter via speculative realism to evil via ethical pessimism. Um, so kind of really the conclusion is, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's two forms of ethical pessimism, right? It's both pessimism as a, a lens onto the ethical significance of matter, but it's also pessimism as, you're right, a motivating ethic, something that shows us how we should and ought to engage with the world. And I think that's really what people may find unusual about the conclusions of the book. Because we usually think of pessimism as being fundamentally a kind of quietistic ethics or a quietistic politics. It says, look, if it's, if it's awful to be, then uh, get out as early as you can, in the words of the poet Philip Larkin, and don't have any kids yourself. You know, you might as well just off yourself, right? And like, one of the persistent questions students always ask me when I teach Schopenhauer is, well, then why, isn't, why doesn't he just say you should kill yourself? And they're right to ask that because it seems to be the logical conclusion of pessimism. Mm -hmm. If, yeah. if being is evil, then you should just withdraw from it. But in fact, I think what's fascinating is that there are figures in the history of pessimism that conclude precisely the opposite. Namely, that if being is evil, then we can take that as an absolute ground, an absolute given, and we can derive from it sort of dialectically, antagonistically, disjunctively, new ethical claims. Namely, it is good to kick against the fundamental arc of reality. And if the arc of reality mm -hmm. is towards indifference, decay, suffering, then it is clearly our ethical imperative to give a damn, to not be indifferent and, yeah. and resist at every turn suffering, to resist at every turn um, decay, to create, to renew, to restore. Uh, and so this seems to me the really interesting and active part of pessimism that it doesn't necessarily motivate a kind of quietistic withdrawal, but in fact, it can kind of energize uh, the importance of a, of a radical engagement with and, and resistance against. So the book concludes actually with this idea of, I think I call it the ethics of perpetual resistance, you know, the importance of, of kicking against this indifference. And again, this, this kind of goes back to what we we're talking about. So for example, when we on what grounds, we might say, can we mobilize an absolute critique of the bombing of a hospital? Well, that's been a trouble for European philosophy for a number of years, because they'll say, well, you're really just mobilizing it from a, a particular viewpoint or a humanistic viewpoint at best. But I want to say, no, it is absolutely and universally wrong. Why? Because it works completely in concert with the indifference of matter itself. And if matter itself mm -hmm. is evil, then this is nothing more than something which affirms the trajectory of matter. And I deny the trajectory of matter. And therefore, by mm -hmm. extension, I deny 
the indifference of these bombings. You are acting in concert with matter. So it's funny, you know, you always hear people say something like, well, if it's natural, then it can't be wrong. This is just the law of the jungle. You know, the lion eats the lamb. That's nature itself. It's red in tooth and claw. And I want to say I completely agree with you. And that's precisely what makes it wrong. Uh, it's wrong precisely because it affirms nature. It's wrong precisely because it works in concert with that with that bloody tooth and claw. Um, and I deny it. I, I want to pursue a different kind of being, a, another world, another universe, an impossible way of being, granted, because there is only one way of being. But its impossibility does not prevent me from trying, trying with all my might. In fact, I would say that goodness precisely lies in the persistency of striving for the impossible. You know, That's the kind of taboo revelation of, of his reading of, of the myth of Sisyphus. I know that it will be impossible to ever uh, win uh, or bend the arc of justice one degree towards goodness because the arc of history bends, uh, unfortunately, and irrevocably towards doom. But it doesn't prevent me from trying. And it's in trying that goodness arises. That's the the beautiful futility of giving a damn. I love that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I almost feel like we should end there because <laughs> I got a lot more to ask you. But um, no, that's that's fantastic. I think that the urgency of the book uh, is in your delivery of it, but the urgency of the ideas, right? The the way we need them, I mm. think, is so importantly in what you're saying in terms of understanding what we're doing right absolutely um, right um uh, what we're doing when when we recognize that evil is overwhelming right and what it means to to work in this in the space of of overwhelm and, and it, it's so important to what we're doing not only as um thinkers like what you and i are working on in our work but but as 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 parents as as teachers, really? etc. Like I, I always think about this. The metaphor I give people is, is you say, like, imagine a doctor in, in an emergency room and someone comes in and says, doctor, doctor, this man's been shot. Uh, any doctor who's familiar with the fundamental laws of thermodynamics will say, uh, well, he's going to die anyway. So what's the point in me helping them? Sure, I may be able to save them today, but they're going to die eventually and, and forever. And so yeah. we'd say that that's a bad doctor. <laughs> a good yeah. doctor says, I know this man might die. Uh, and even if I save them, they'll eventually die, but they're not going to die today. The heart of the ethical practice is similar. I know that matter tends towards doom and suffering and evil, and everything I do will eventually just perpetuate it and contribute to it. But not today. Not today. Not not in this moment. In this moment, I can fight for something different. In this moment, I can fight for something better. So similarly, we all know, again, to, to go back to Philip Larkin, the wonderful poem, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Yeah. And when we have kids ourselves, we know we're going to do the same. We know we're going to mess our kids up. But it doesn't prevent us from working very hard and trying. It doesn't prevent us from being good parents. And good parents aren't parents that don't fuck up their kids. Good parents that are ones who kick impossibly against the, the absolute certainty that they will. They strive at every moment to not to, even though they know they eventually will. And so it's similar, right? I know that it is futile to kick against the structures of reality. The structures of reality will win. And I believe the structures of reality are bent towards evil. But my goodness as a subject, my goodness as a political um, uh, 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 community member, my, my goodness as a, a teacher, a parent, a doctor, whatever it is, comes in kicking impossibly against the inevitability of my failure. It's refusing yeah. to accept it, even though I know it's in a sense, it's doing with the left hand what I know, <laughs> such that the right hand doesn't know what it's doing, right? <laughs> to go back to your Jesuit education. 
Yes, excellent, excellent. Let me ask you. I mean, in, uh, you know, we uh, it's, it takes a while to get into the book. Um, you know, in terms of this conversation, but uh, in some ways, you've gone totally through the book. But let me get uh, still not off the the front of the cover and ask you about the cover design. Um, you know, it covers. I mean, they range from people commission a particular artist to do the thing they want to i stock photo that you don't really have a say in and everything in between so i want to ask you just about your cover um you know i mean the origins of it you know if you want to but uh, just the significance of it i have to say i found it really ominous right <laughs> and, and people who look who who listen to this it'll have the cover sitting there so they can look at it uh it definitely triggered something that is is from my own childhood i was very i was very afraid of the sun as a child because somehow I learned in school or somebody said something about the sun will burn out someday and swallow up the earth or, you know, I became haunted by this. I think it's the origins of becoming a philosopher <laughs> probably, but, um, but I found it to be a really intriguing cover, but also unnerving. And for me really set the stage for the book, right? That there's something about the enormity of, of space and our vulnerability to it that's on that cover. But I was wondering what the cover meant to you. Gosh, it's such a great question. And, and I love the fact that you're asking this because, you know, we're so often taught to not judge a book by its cover, but of course we all do. <laughs> and we, we spend time thinking about covers when and where we have the capacity to control them because we, we want them to kind of motivate a thought, you know? So yeah, of course we judge books by their covers and, and maybe we should. Um, I realize it's a metaphor about not judging things by how they look, but um, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, but still, I think I, I appreciate the fact that you're judging it by its cover. So I think that I chose the cover for any number of reasons, at least three. The first is that it was driven by, again, um, and motivated by my reading of contemporary sciences and engaging with some of the astronomical and, and physical facts, precisely one of the ones you mentioned, the fact that the sun will explode, the fact that the sun is um, not a, a source of perpetual renewal, um, but is precisely the very thing which will eventually not only um, obliterate all of humanity, presuming it's still around in 2.5 billion years, but that uh, it will obliterate every indication that we've ever been here if we don't accomplish it ourselves before then. You know, yeah. So <clears throat> I also think that uh, thinking in terms of these metaphysical questions in terms of practical scientific material things is useful. And I thought that a cover that drew that out would, would help. But the other reason I, I chose the cover as I did is because um, the concept of the burnout of the sun or the sun itself as a, as a kind of metaphorical object is something that's guiding this, the arc of these three books that I'm, um, this is the second of, that I'm working on the third. So the last book, The Ethics of Resistance, the cover um, featured the transit of Venus, which is, you know, the, the, we can take a photo of Venus tracking across the sun. And when you do it, it oh, yeah. the horrifying hugeness of the sun with relationship to these celestial objects becomes clear. And the central metaphor of that work is that the goodness, the alleged goodness of the sun, the alleged goodness of this kind of absolute ground or absolute foundation, both of our celestial system um, and of uh, our life on this planet is a relative goodness. It's only achieved and achievable um, in as much is, as we maintain a healthy distance from it right? Uh, so uh -huh. we drift too close, we're going to burn up. We drift too far, we, we freeze. So, so goodness is, again, a relative project to a kind of otherwise absolute horrifying danger. Absolute frozen cold or 
absolute burning up heat. And so this sort of dialectical relationship is something that guides that thing. So I thought, well, it'd be nice if I could kind of have a visual harmony with that book. But now instead of talking about ethics and politics as this way of defining literally a kind of zone of, of relative well-being in resistance to the temptation mm-hmm. to either drift inwards, uh, you know, gravitationally or drift outwards centripically, but to stay in a kind of healthy margin. I thought, well, if, since this engages the kind of metaphysical things, let's, let's also use the sun, but let's use it to complete eclipse. And so I thought if there was some way we could visually project that or portray that, that would be it. So you, you got it. You got it. Absolutely. Like the, the intuitions you had looking at it were precisely what I was hoping to evoke um, as well as again, visual symmetry with the last book and also the, the fact that we're engaging with some sort of scientific facts here. Well, you, it triggered one of my t- childhood terrors, which <laughs> uh, there was that and the idea that I was the last human and everybody else was a robot. But uh, oh. those were two things that uh, I had a lot of fevers when I was a kid. I think that's part of the explanation here. But um, but in a good way, I, I, it triggered that fear because I think, it, it, you know, the book, as, as you've said, is about this really visceral and primal experience. It is. I want to ask you about the figures in the book. And I was thinking about this when I was reading it, um, you know, working on a project, my a book project myself right now, and it has a sort of, you know, on for, from, I think from an outsider, sort of rambling collection of thinkers, like, why would I be talking about all these people? Um, and I feel like that's a question I have to answer as an author to myself, right? I, I'm putting these people together because I have an idea I want to talk about, but, um, I think it's a question we, uh, you know, we all ask also as we read, you know, you talked about judging a book by its cover. The truth is everybody picks up a book, they look at the cover, they see who blurbed it, they read the acknowledgements, and then they scan through the uh, table of contents. I mean, I think that's just, (laughs) so, so, uh, you know, one cover or another is a lot of the judgment. I love the the abbreviations reading. Everybody's uh, quick to that, either see if they're in there or see who they think, (laughs) but when I was looking, when I first picked up the book and I looked through um, through the table of contents, and then also just just you know looking at the citations, I mean, I was really struck by the eclecticism of your of your references. I mean, given the theme, I think it makes sense just intuitively. You know, you're going to talk about Kant and Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, Spinoza, Badu, right? They sort of collect around i think in, intuitively especially given your your background in european philosophy um but you also have these forays into you know just to pick two buddhism i mean natural science which you've talked a lot about about buddhism about afro pessimism and you know we could add other things in there as well and so i'm curious what guided you in these in this sort of choice of, of figures, choice of movements, choice of ideas, um, because it's as intuitive as it is eclectic. And I love eclecticism, so I take that as, as, as praise and compliment. But also, when I see these eclectic collections of thinkers, I wonder to myself, like, what made you scoop these up? Right. Mm. Sometimes it comes from like we teach. Sometimes it comes from it's time to write my book from a place of my own curiosity rather than canonical figures or, you know, John, you know, uh, subfield figures. Uh, but sometimes it's like these are the only people who can actually help me with mm. my ideas. So I'm curious, like, what guided you in these selections? 
Yeah, you know, I think I think it's the last of those points more than anything else. I I, I really feel that when you're chasing down an idea, I'm going to use the word chase in the classic sort of French sense, le chasse, it's a hunt. There's this living dynamic concept that you hear calling to you in the night and you decide, I want to figure out where this thing's residing, where it's calling, where it's leading me. And so you initially sort of survey your field. Um, the first step out of your door, what do I know? Well, I know these thinkers. I'm going to read these thinkers and try to chase down and see if I can't find hints of this living dynamic idea there. And then you, 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 again, you, you follow where there's a little bit of crushed leaf or, or bent over grass or snapped twig. And you say, it seems to have passed this way. Where does that lead me? And you keep sort of chasing it deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest until you find yourself sometimes looking back going, what a bizarre path I've traversed. Like I, this doesn't seem like a path. And if, if somebody had just wandered into the bush, they wouldn't have seen the path that was carved here, because the only thing that's really made it is the idea I'm chasing itself. <clears throat> and I really hope that as the reader reads the book, th- I've, I've then successfully charted that path. So they go, oh, well, this is not just some weird meandering up the garden path, as it were. They're not just getting me lost in the field. There actually is something here. There's there's a thread. There, there's a through line. And they're showing me, uh, they're guiding me from the familiar, from the home to the unfamiliar, to the resident of this sort of bizarre idea that that's lurking out there in the, in the forest of, of reality. And so <clears throat> I think it does look from the outset, like who, who are these figures and, and how do they all fit together? But I hope that in the sequence of the work itself, it goes, okay, now that we've answered this problem, notice it, it leads to this other little direction. We've got to follow this little uh, trail. We've got to follow this little path. So for example, you're right. Like the first question is, well, can we talk about reality itself? Well, there's going to be Kant. Then we go, well, there are those who say we can, speculative realists. Okay, well, if we've got this new speculative realist framework, what's the nature of reality? Well, let's see what the, the material scientists say about that, following the insights of the speculative realists. Oh, cool. Well, now that we've got these uh, material scientists and what they've said, let's make sure that we're not committing any fallacies here. So let's look at the Sokol affair. Let's see if that's something that's going to limit us. Let's look at the so-called um, naturalistic fallacy, our attempts to derive an ethical meaning from this. Let's settle those concerns. Let's show that we're not doing that. Okay, now that we've done this, let's turn to those thinkers who look at reality. Well, boom, we've got this weird pessimistic thread. And, and as we're following that, we go, well, gosh, how, how does this lead into a kind of uh, 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 practical. Now that we've we've seen that we can derive ethic, eth- an ethical meaning from it, how can it, it become practical? Well, there's two or three really great thinkers about regards to that. The first one is a guy named Philip Mainlander, who had previously been untranslated into English, and I translate him for for the work. He was a, in some sense a student of Schopenhauer, but he, he, his whole point was that a robust uh, pessimism leads to radical ethical and political activism. So I wonder. Hmm. With him. But then what's really fascinating is that that's precisely the same motivating element of, of Buddhist thought, which itself motivated uh, Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer was deeply moved by Buddhist thought, uh, and he felt that it was the only truly viable ethical system in the history of, of the West, or excuse me, the history of thought. And he felt that its, its absence in Western thought was precisely because of a Western resistance to the otherness of its negativity, he thought. So he wanted to mine it for ethical meaning. So it led me to Buddhism. And then finally, Afro-pessimism, which I think is one of the most um, powerful ways in which pessimism is being mobilized in the contemporary theoretical world to help us rethink our responsibilities to to reality. So Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you, you start with Kant and you end with Afro-pessimism and you go, how on earth did you get from here to there? How, did you just guide us into this sort of abyss of a forest and I'm never going to find my way back? But again, I do hope in the, in the narrative thread of the, of, the, of the piece itself, you go, oh gosh, there is really a coherence to this otherwise seeming eclecticism. Um, but the coherence of it lies in, the, in the, 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 the dynamism of the idea itself, which again is not my idea. I, I don't think of this as something that I'm just creating. Um, out of my own sort of, um, you know, interest, but rather I'm, I'm, I'm following, I'm chasing itself. It's other than me. And I'm just trying to testify to its dynamism. And again, as you pointed out, like it, it, it does appear, it appears in the margins throughout the history of thought, in pessimism, um, in Afro-pessimism, in Buddhism, in Manichaeism. There are all these weird little marginal moments in the history of global thought where these sort of intuitions are emerging and the hope of this work, as I say in the introduction, is to rescue them from the margins and put them squarely and centrally at the heart of our metaphysical investigations, of our ethical investigations, and of our political attempts to, to craft more just, kind, and good worlds, you know? Mm-hmm. And I love that description of, of, of you know, forging or following a trail, probably a combination of those two, especially because, I mean, it's not, not to, to talk about myself in this, but you know, I, my own writing process, like I think of like first and second drafts, all of which, by the way, we could never be archived in the same way as the olden days, because our first drafts will be lost to uh, saves uh, on Word. But I have almost every other paragraph starts with a question, like mm-hmm. writing it, I write in the interrogative, right? And I've wondered, like, you know, what is this interrogative? Why do I have to keep asking myself these questions? And like hearing this description of the trail, right, and and the way each sort of pause on the trail asks a new question, and then you have to figure out who can actually help me with this question. I really love that as like writing and composition and thinking all at the same time as discovery, but also charted discovery, mm. right? Not a sort of, you know peering at uh, up at space and seeing everything you need to see but instead you know uh finding things along the way finding people who who help you with those with those answers because as you say i mean it's you know what you know that that um the the way you arrive at at you know uh sequentially you answer one question it's the next question that for me is like it's the enduring significance of philosophy for writers Mm. I always try to tell my students, like, write with a question. They're always like, what? Your essay answers a question. Um, and I love that, the path as, like, the biggest question. Like, where is this actually going to take me? I mean, this book kind of just takes you to the middle of the forest and leaves you there. But, you know, <laughs> at, least we got in, <laughs> at least we got in somewhere. Um, let me ask you, I, also, um, you know, when I read books, uh, you know, that I like, um, there always seems to be a moment. It's usually early on in the book where um, something in the book, whether it's a novel or, or in this case, a, a theoretical work, where I kind of have to put the book down. Like this, like unnerved me. I had a scene of whatever in the novel, but it's really early on. I think it was on like page five or seven in in, in your book. And you have this. I'm going to read this sentence and just ask you to talk a bit, a little bit about this. Um, and if your thing is, well, that I just toss that in, that's fine. <laughs> but it did make me put the book down. Right. And you write, um, you write, the primal origin of our ethical categories is exemplified in our instit- instinctive tendency 
to respond to bad news by crying out, no, it can't be. And when I read that, I just thought of like, no, it can't be. It's such a modality of life, mm. you know, and to say there, you know, that, that our, that sort of everything is coming from this moment that's in our everyday life. I just wanted to ask you to talk about, it. I felt very unnerved by that. I mean, I, I find it really profound and I also found its intimacy difficult, right? Mm. Theoretical books often, we don't experience that intimacy in the way we maybe do with a poem or a novel that can get so deep in our heart. But this like really placed the book in a, in a heart space that was very difficult for me. And I had to pause. I was like, I got to ask Drew about this. Mm. You know, I think it structures the whole book. In some ways, I think maybe you've already answered this, but no, it can't be like, like where, where did that, characterization and sort of centering of the project come from. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, I appreciate you picking up on that. That that really is in many ways the heart of the book. And I do think it's the the sort of most personal moment for me as well, because it's it's a moment in which I the book, as I was trying to write it and think about it, because again, if we follow again the metaphor we were just using of of blazing a trail, following a, a, a following your prey, and then wanting to guide other people to it. You know, you you do your research stage your guide, you're, fo- you're finding the path and sometimes they're false paths and you have to cut off and then you find the true path and ultimately you, you, you know where it leads. But then as you write, you want to turn back and, and sh- act as if you knew the direction all along, right? You don't want to keep your reader fumbling through the dark. And so you have to write in this way that, that not only guides them with the confidence of the path you've discovered, all the work and time you've put in it, but, but that also shows them that Look, there's something at stake here that's very real and that's very personal. This is not merely about chasing this idea down. There's something at, at the heart of all of our experiences which comes to that. And that, that's what this moment really grew for me. I was thinking about my own encounters with suffering, the su- my own suffering, the suffering of others that you have compassionately for, or, or as you watch uh, people who go through uh, way more extreme suffering than, 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 than we, we do. And you notice the one thing that unifies it is this sort of denial, right? I mean, there's even this... I don't know much about it, but the stages of grief, like the first one being denial, but there's something so poignant in that. Like, What's going on in that denial? And that denial seems to be more than just a psychological survival technique. It seems to be carry with it a kind of ontological and ethical significance. Like it's, it, it, it's such a, a, a powerful and, and I think rich elocutionary moment because it, it it literally speaks to being itself. No, we say it, it, it can't be this way. It, and it really follows up that it shouldn't be this way. Why is it this way? I mean, all of these sort of major existential crises grow out of a profound denial of the facts. This is just the facts of life, they say. And when people assert that, they assert it again so indifferently, so coldly to our denial. They say, well, you just have to go up and face the facts. I know you don't want it to be the case. But there's something more meaningful in the fact that we don't want it to be the case. There's something more meaningful in the fact that this is horrifying. And so why not just follow that thread? Why not tease that out and say, well, there's something that already in that moral intuition, which we can follow, namely that being is not something we want. It's not something that is good. It is not something that's affirming of 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 our sense of worth that our sense of worth precisely comes in denial of it. Because we say it, it it can't be, it shouldn't be. So why is it then in this is-ought distinction that we typically say, well, the is is value neutral or is good, and the ought 
this ethics, right? Mm -hmm. This moment of ethics is um, simply redressing something else. Why not say, well, the is, this primal encounter with being where we say no, or why? Why not say, well, that's bad. That's what's real then. And the ought is actually precisely what isn't real. The ought is to where we flee, to the thing which we seek to evade or escape the fact. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right. That was a very, that was a moment for me in the writing of it where it hit home for me. And I realized this chase that I'd been doing was not merely th- quote unquote theoretical to use the term pejoratively, but, but it, it speaks to a very real problem. You know, when you go to the doctor and they say, look, we found something, that horrifying moment. I mean, you think, no, 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 you've got to be wrong. I need a second opinion. No, it, it can't be that way. Or when you discover that your partner is ill and you, you, everything within you wants to rebel against it, you know, um, mm-hmm. when, you, when you hear your child crying and you think, no, this can't be, I, this, this shouldn't be, this ought not to be, there's got to be another way. What, what's, what's revealed in that moment is what I really want to tease out. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah, that's the, the way it grounds it in, um, in a place we all not only have been, but are pretty consistently. Mm. I mean, that, that's, I, I love that. It, uh, it's the best of existential phenomenology, really, I think, drawing that level of insight from um, something quite everyday, but also exceptional, the exceptional moments in our everyday. Um, so not the everyday in a, in a pejorative sense. Let me ask you also. Now, this kind of skips to the to the to the clo- near the close of the book, but wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about why you took up this uh, uh, took up Afro pessimism in the New Directions and Pessimism chapter. Um, obviously, it has pessimism in the in the, <laughs> the name, and so it's sort of you know uh, intuitive. But um, you know, as someone who's also engaged with with that emerging tradition, but also its own resonance across the the black intellectual tradition historically, you know, that really drew me. I was like, oh, I was really excited to see you know you 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 treat these texts and these ideas, which I have to say also, um, it's a controversial movement in black studies, it is. and I think in its controversy, it's often not taken seriously. And I was mm. really happy to see how seriously you took these claims. Um, you know, it's mostly talking about, uh, you know, Wilderson, Warren and Hartman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to sort of ask you, you know, wh- why Afro-pessimism, you know, you've talked about a, a good amount about Buddhism. And I think it sort of answers that question is so why, why is Buddhism, you know, elements of Buddhism so important to, to dealing with the questions of the book? Uh, why Afro-pessimism uh, and what in particular about that movement? So thank you so much. I, I think I, I was very excited. The two biggest breakthrough moments for me in terms of discovering the end path, as it were, the, the final sort of break to, to continue our metaphor of chasing a chasing our game through the, the forest, the, the final place where I kind of came into the clearing. I thought, oh, this is it. This is it. Came through my reading and my encounter with Philip Mainlander, who I had never heard of before. I, I mean, this is just not a figure I'd ever engaged with before. And again, in part because he'd never been translated into English before. 
And by the, the way, of- a lot of us are going to be happy to hear that because now we don't have to pretend like we already knew who he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there was a few little references to him. Nietzsche has a footnote about him in which he calls him an, an apostle of virginity. Um, so it was like, you know, there's these tiny little <laughs> marginal moments in the history of the otherwise canonical thinkers. And I thought, well, who is this thinker? And so I, I grabbed a copy of, of his German work and I started just kind of working through it. And I thought, this is it. This is, this is what I've been looking for. And what I think I was looking for and what I loved about it is the way he wedded, again, a materialistic metaphysics, so got metaphysics, with a concrete ethics, with a determinate uh, political practice out of it. In other words, he did not see these things as divorced. He didn't go, well, there's metaphysical truths, and then there's ethical truths, and then there's social and political truths, as if they're three different um, uh, 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 sections of, of a pie. He saw them as all intimately growing in and out of one another and feeding back to one another. And, and, and that brought it all home. That was the so what moment for me. That was, the, again, that we're mixing our metaphors, but that was the testimony of the earth. That's when I saw that there was this complete through line from science, metaphysics, ethics, and politics. And the other moment for me was precisely in discovering Afro-pessimism because I feel like they did the exact same thing. In the Afro-pessimist sort of a newly emergent Afro-pessimist tradition, there's this reality to seeing social and political facts, the subjugation of the black body as a metaphysical reality, not merely, uh, oh, well, this is a, a terrible accident of history, of social and political history, but actually having ontological ramifications and political ramifications. And, and what I love about Afro-pessimism is, is the purity and the simplicity of the idea. It's always what makes great thought. When they go, look, it's really quite simple. What was the subjugation of the black body, if not a kind of metaphysical alchemy, where you turned someone yeah. into something and vice versa, something, the white body, into someone, the living subject. And this split between subject and object, material body for use, pure potentiality, and, there, and therefore abject and evil, devoid of meaning and value, and the elevation of the, of the allegedly white subject uh, with all of its goodness and, and ethical systems. That brilliant insight into the kind of metaphysical import of this political act I thought was so impressive. Because it, again, it saw not metaphysics, matter, ethics, and politics as three sort of distinct little uh, buckets, but it saw it as, again, a, a contiguous reality that addressed mm-hmm. precisely the kind of issues I wanted to address. What is matter and where does our evaluation come from? And so in these two figures, well, Mainlander and these these other figures, the, the, the Afro-pessimist thinkers, I was like, this is, this is where it came home. And, and what really excited me is I felt like Mainlander, kind of chronologically, <clears throat> the first to really do this for me. But the problem with Mainlander is while he makes some vague suggestions of the kind of political import that um, these sort of pessimistic metaphysics can have in our ethical lives and our political life, he doesn't really give us any concrete activities that we engage in. He says vaguely, for example, that um, a, a pessimism should promote itself towards a kind of universal liberatory politics, which he sees exemplified, for example, in communism for an, any number of reasons and mm-hmm. ways. He also says it could should commit us to um, uh, certain sociopolitical movements like the free love movement, which by the way is not the free love movement we associate it with the 60s, but was a precursor <laughs> to an um, and, uh, ally of feminism. In other words, the liberation of the sexes from their subject, subjugated. So we have these some specific moments, but it still retains 
it still stays at the level of the kind of politically abstract. He's talking about structures of government, structures of system, ways of resisting these things. What I loved about Afro-pessimists is they precisely critique these kind of abstract structurals. And they want to say, look, how can we work this out concretely in our lived political history, in our lived sociological history? And how can we derive from that what um, uh, Wilderson calls uh, concrete marching orders to change the world, <laughs> to live a better life? So I, I felt like what Afro-pessimism did for me is not only kind of serve as a, as a way in which, oh my gosh, all of these through lines do connect, but it really kind of for lack of a better word, it concretized the problem. It, it provided practical existential import of the kind of radical politics that we can derive from pessimism via mainlander. In other words, yeah. what I said is if if we can think of of, of uh, mainlanders first suggesting these things, it's the Afro-pessimists who then kind of like bring it home and say, okay, look, for those of us who live in this history, at this time, here's some things we need to do. Here are the ways we resist it. So for example, what is the history of, of white supremacy, if not the history of working alongside nature to subjugate and destroy and treat with indifference <laughs> matter? And, and so I just feel like, so how, concretely, how do I resist the indifference of matter? By resisting white supremacy, which is nothing if not a politics of indifference. Yeah. So it gave me concrete marching orders. And what's brilliant about the Afro-pessimists is they, they even go even further. They say, look, you want to be good? Then, then bear in mind, your rebellion has to not merely be political. It has to be ontological. It has to be metaphysical. It has yeah. to be against your own being itself, particularly you as a white man, particularly me. My <laughs> commitment to goodness has to not merely be, oh, I vote for the right party or I donate to the right organizations or I, you know, I eat free range uh, uh, or organic asparagus. It, it, it has to be a, a, a complete rejection, an absolute rebellion against my very being. That's what they 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 show me how, and they show me that concretely through history. Yeah. And and I love that. I love that. I find that so important and so vital. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, I, I don't know if you wrote the book, sort of, you know, page one to page. How many pages is it? 278 something like that yeah, three um yeah something <laughs> it's long yeah so um uh but you know i think every every good book ends in a way that then it makes you reread the whole book mm. and you know reading that afro pessimist section i wasn't sure just to be honest i wasn't sure if it was my own interest in black studies and comparative work that made me think, Oh, I got to go reread this whole book because all the time it was really about the issues you're talking about here with Afro pessimism. Mm. Right. And then, you know, I mean, we had to talk, so I didn't go back and reread, but I'm like, I'm going to reread the book thinking like, and I think really great books. The end is the only thing that makes sense of the beginning. Mm. And hearing you talk about it, I was glad because it sort of confirmed that it's like, this is what you really wanted. But in yes. order to get there, you wanted to do all this work so that the stage of Afro-pessimism could, you know, be as big as it is in the book. But also, like, give it that really serious reading. I just was so happy to see Afro-pessimism be taken seriously as, as a metaphysical and ontological project. Absolutely. Because it's so often about, like, we need a different kind of affect. Or, you know, these people sort of, you know, this movement sort of... Um, I say these people because I do think it gets personal sometimes in these mm. debates, but it's like, you know, they're just taking us in a bad direction, whereas it's not a taking in direction, it's a taking stock. 
Absolutely. I mean, if there's and something you make that clear. Yeah, there's something so deeply phenomenological. I mean, they, they wouldn't use that term necessarily uh, in the Afro-pessimist tradition in the sense of, you know, if we think of phenomenological in that classic Husserlian sense, I, it's a description of the conditions of being. It's a description yeah. of existential conditions in which we find ourselves. So I think part of the controversy of not only Afro-pessimism and pessimism in general, as everybody goes, well, why do you have to be such a downer? <laughs> well, because... The facts. The world's down. <laughs> the world is down. The existential facts of our material being are a downer. And, and the way that it has worked out in our particular history is white supremacy. The way it has worked out in our particular history is patriarchy. The way it's worked out in our particular history and this, and this sequence of events is this way, which means if we find ourselves here and we want to kick against it, and in reality, we can't kick against it abstractly. We have to kick against it concretely. And they're just describing the concrete conditions of the lived experience of the contemporary person, um, yeah. at least in the West. And, and so I love it. Yeah, I, I, I really was inspired by them. And I think you're absolutely right. The way I would put it is I give them the final word. Um, yeah. In many ways, they give the final word to the whole hunt, uh, which is, so what? Again, to go back, so what? So what do we do now? They tell us, they tell us, they give us some concrete marching orders uh, yeah. of, of, of how we can kick against the matter of evil. Um, and, 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 and lean our shoulders against the wheel of history. So maybe this is, maybe that's already an answer to uh, these sort of last, uh, at least one of the last two questions I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, the funny thing about writing a book is, is we, we sit in, um, you know, our office cafe, wherever we're writing, and we have all these visions of what a reader <laughs> is going to uh, encounter in the book, right? In addition to the horror of somebody actually reading our books, but, you know, we want them to take away something from the book. Uh, but we also know, I mean, this is the hermeneutic event of reading. They're also going to take from it what they want, right? Mm. I mean, readers bring something to the book, but they don't, you know, you know, the book has its, has its claim on a reader. And as writers, we have a particular vision, you know, or something of a vision of what we want readers to, um, get from the book. And I always like to say, walk away not take away take away to me is is too proprietary and mm. um i like walk away because you know i do find that things that really impact me i feel like i walk a little bit different you know that it that it changes my embodied presence to the world not to be over dramatic about it but i mean i dedicate my life to books like you um so i'm curious like when you imagine readers walking away from this book how do you want uh, imagine them walking differently because of what you did and Thank said you. in the book. Yeah, I love that question. I I think like I never expect, and I'm sure you're the same, um, someone to be convinced by what I re write. You know? God, and I don't no think way. the aim is yeah. <laughs> I don't think the aim of what we do is to convince uh, people. The aim is hopefully to open up new directions of thought, maybe raise some new questions. Um, gosh, if anything, the the most I think the more horrifying than not being read is being read and 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 somebody believing what we write. You know, like not yeah. believing that we're not. I mean, we are taking it very seriously. But I mean, I think I would be more fearful of um, um, creating a an apostle than I am an, an adversary. So I think there's really three things that I would hope someone walks away from the book with. I think the first is asking a, a new or interrogating anew the possibility of deriving universal absolutes 
both at the metaphysical level and at the moral level and at the social level and the political level. I think we have given up uh, in recent um, theoretical history the possibility of claiming that there is a universal, actual, absolute ground for our metaphysical and moral claims. And I, I want one. I really do want one. I want to be able to say with absolute certainty, with absolute conviction, no, this is wrong. Do not do this. But to do that, I think, requires a second thing. Taking seriously the possibility that the ground for that is not going to be discourse or logic or reason. Um, it's certainly not going to be some divine, but it might be found in the material sciences. That maybe there is some moral, metaphysical, social, and political um, valences in the developments and discoveries of the material sciences in the last hundred years that we have not explored fully in, um, in a theoretical lens in philosophy or in the, mm -hmm. the mid-Atlantic theory. The third would be, is it possible that the best way forward to make these kind of universal, moral, metaphysical, social, political, absolute claims on the basis of science is not positively? In other words, it's not saying what we should do or what we you know, ought to do, but rather saying what we shouldn't to do, what we ought not to do. In other words, is there a way in which we could start reconceiving ethical responsibility, political duty, and social activity <clears throat> negatively? as a way of resisting, countering, and fighting against something. Mm -hmm. That would be really the three major things I would hope somebody could walk away with, the three major questions, just the possibility of conceiving of these things. Because then again, it gives me a ground to not say, you know, you should really tie your shoes or you should really try this new restaurant, but rather, you know, you really shouldn't bomb hospitals. You know, <laughs> you yeah. really shouldn't um, <clears throat> just take for granted the privileges which you've been given by um, a really profoundly unjust history. You know, you should really not uh, <clears throat> enjoy your domination. Um, mm -hmm. You should not uh, be so complicit in the destructive history of history itself. You should not be so complicit in, in the moral horror of being itself. Um, you should not be so easy with your material being because as you know, intuitively, it ain't easy to be. Yeah. yeah, I love that. It's a it's an agitational aspiration. <laughs> the agitate, I mean, that's that's no small accomplishment. Well, let me turn that back on you as a sort of final question. Um, you know, we we don't write as abstract creatures. We're also human beings who undergo something as we write. So I'm also curious, you know, how you walk differently after this mm. book. Um, in terms of, you know, how did the book impact your own, the writing of the book impact your own thinking and your own orientation? This is also an invitation if you, if you want to, to, to talk about, you know, its future projects. I always hate asking that because it's enough to have published a book. You know, you don't always have to be <laughs> on the next book, but I know that you are on to, as you said, a third sort of in the, in this trilogy, but I'm just wondering how the book changed how you walk and sort of where it moved you to begin thinking again. Well, I have to say the question as it's phrased invites uh, a comedic response. So it was such a huge pain in the ass that I'm walking with a limp. Uh, <laughs> that's how I walk. A lot of pages, man. <laughs> it is a lot of pages, but I actually mean it um, very genuinely, very sincerely. I have to say that um, investigating these questions, um, I can talk about them with a bit of um, joie de vivre now. 
but I actually really struggled uh, very concretely and to be very uh, transparent with uh, some profound depression uh, while writing this, so profound extended uh, depression. Um, because it's difficult to confront these things. It's difficult not only to confront them uh, at a theoretical level, but to confront my own complicity in it. And to struggle with these things fundamentally changed the way I think about reality, think about myself, think about my uh, the ease with which I have taken myself for so long um, and take it for granted, uh, things, uh, and also change the way I think about my own ethical and moral responsibilities to this world um, and in, in very concrete and, and practical ways. Um, so I think it, it, it did not leave me unchanged at all. Um, and, and I think in many ways that, uh, is what leads to the very thing you hinted at, which is the kind of next project, which is okay. So if the confrontation with these things can so significantly sap us of vital power, launch us into a kind of depression, what techniques, what, what uh, resources do we have to draw from to sustain ourselves in the face of this moral horror and in deference to our ethical and moral duties to constantly kick against it? And so this is kind of pushing me towards an, the analysis of kind of aesthetics of pessimism. What kind of ways can I encounter uh, joy and pleasure and um, derive negatively little moments of escape, escape valves, right? Release valves from the great moral horror without renouncing my ethical responsibilities. So let me give you a concrete example. I think that there's something alluring in escapist aesthetics precisely because it alleviates us momentarily from the burden of being, right? So we know like there's so much uh, uh, interesting critical work done on escapist aesthetics precisely in that valence, but it's usually done negatively. They say, well, that's precisely what's wrong with escapism, yeah. right? And I want to say, well, maybe that's the moral excellence of escapism. But the question is, is it possible to engage in such escapist aesthetic indulgences, things which can just kind of make it a little bit easier, at least for a moment, to endure and enjoy our existence, but without then collapsing into kind of a kind of moral quietism again? In other words, can I draw from those things strength to renew my commitment to the doing good, to the negative activity of resisting these things. And that's really what the next project is going to be about. I don't know. I don't know because I'm just in a similar thing. I've, I've kind of emerged into this new clearing. I found this new place um, and I've tried to lead others to it. But now I'm starting to see that there are new things that lurk in the woods that surround this new place. Um, and, and, and that's what I want to sort of chase down in my next book. I want to ask Yes, escapism might be a moral good through the lens of pessimism, but how can it be a moral good and a source of renewal such that it's not merely a distraction? Um, and that's really kind of what I want to ask. Well, I, you know, <laughs> you just finished this book. It just came out, but you got to hurry up and write that book. That's extremely interesting and uh, much needed. I, I will envy the people who read these books back to back. Um because of the of the you know the sequential and the sort of answering of these further questions but um i love that i love that new project and uh, i know you have other things going on in your life but you should pause them all and finish the book for the sake of the rest of us. <laughs> well, you know, I, 
If for those who are interested, I did just publish a short little piece in the conversation uh, about the music of Jimmy Buffett, who is probably quintessentially uh, the captain of, of escapism, uh, in which I tried to kind of start wrestling with some of these questions. Um, oh. So uh, I, I'm hoping the book will will have a room for some excursus into actual artists like that, because um, I think that'd be not only fun, <laughs> but a way of again concretizing this question. Well, let me. Uh, I will actually link to that um, in the little uh, description of the of the podcast. But uh, thank you so much for making time to talk about uh, about this book, Drew. I mean, I love the book. I learned a lot. It had left me with so much to think about. But this conversation too, like I really learned a lot in this in this conversation. I think anybody listening really will. So thank you for that. That takes time and energy and effort, and uh, I really appreciate it. I'm gonna be thinking about this for quite a while. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, again, try to make some sense of the madness of this, this weird, weird project. Yes, it's a fantastic project. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, take care.